The first one that I was really like, that's not reality, was a conspiracy theory about something to do with an island owned by the American government that's not on the map, that they control the weather from, and it's something to do with getting back at Japan for Pearl Harbor, and there's a reason that Japan doesn't have an agricultural industry like it used to, and it's because all of the weather is being controlled by the US government from somewhere, and in reality, it's like, well, that's called climate change. There's a, like the reason that Japan keeps having so many bad weather events, that's climate change, and that is a real problem. Like, we can talk about that, but it's not... I can't talk about that if the basis of that is grounded in, like, this staunch belief that there's a hidden island. Like, yeah, it becomes very, very difficult to talk to someone when so many of these things that you do want to talk about are actually these massive, these really big problems. Like, they're social problems and they're environmental problems, but the angle that they're being kind of approached from is unbelievable. Unbelievable and kind of confusing, but not a lot makes sense when you start diving into the world of conspiracy theories. That secret weather island is a new one to me, maybe you too, but by now you've probably had someone, an aunt or an old friend from high school, posting on Facebook about things like chemtrails and 5G towers. Maybe you even heard some that actually make you stop and think, like, is my phone really eavesdropping on my conversations? Fake news, misinformation, disinformation, from genuine conspiracies to the purely theoretical ones. There's a lot of people who've lost faith in traditional institutions of power and are searching for answers that make sense to them, even if they don't make sense full stop. Molly, who is telling this story, has some ideas about how we got here, which, if I'm honest, aren't as exciting as I'd hoped. I don't think anyone really wakes up one day, like, gasping for breath and thinking everyone else is a lizard. We all want to know why people believe in conspiracy theories, and we'll dig into that later. But I also want to know what it's like for people like Molly standing on the sidelines. Is there anything that she can do? I'm Stephen Stockwell, and this is Doom Scroll Remedy, a podcast from the University of Queensland where we spend time with the people living through the existential threats that keep us up at night and the people trying to solve them. We're unpacking the big questions about how the planet, humans, ended up like this. Not with the goal of fixing them. We're not wizards. But in the hope that we can slow down enough to understand these big problems swirling through our feeds. The sort of story that Molly is telling about a person that she loves becoming more and more entangled in conspiracy theories is not uncommon. Molly's family would often talk politics. And for the most part, they've always been on the same page. But gradually, conversations with her brother started to change. I think it always starts with like a general disenfranchisement and a general mistrust of um, hierarchy and of the government and of you know power structures. Then at some point you having you find yourself having an argument about five G or you find yourself having an argument about something and it's like it stops making sense. This story gets pretty personal, so we asked Molly if she wanted to change her name. She didn't. But she did want to change her brother's name. So, Molly, blank slate. Any name in the world. I always wished he was called Sam. Tell me about Sam. He would be 31. He doesn't live in the country. But in the years since he's moved overseas, he's become very interested in conspiracy theories. Um, and what I would consider conspiracy theories and what he considers um, a very emotional reality. Do you worry about Sam? Oh, Constantly. 
Yeah, all of the time. What about? I worry that he's maybe making his own life harder. I worry that he's isolating himself. I worry that he is losing community um, and gaining, I don't want to say the wrong type of community, but the community that he is gaining is non-physical and it's not it's online and it's in some ways that makes it purely theoretical and that's not a support system and I think that that's like as we're seeing more and more something that we need like a physical and present support system and I think that that's what I worry the most about is that he's isolating. How does that kind of influence the way that you you talk to Sam? When I have the emotional strength to talk to him about these things as well lots of it um, sometimes does come down to me just trying to protect my own well-being and my mental well-being because it can be incredibly stressful and I'm not always up for it, which I think is, like, fair enough and that's a long process, I think, to give yourself the space to just not engage with it for a while. Um, but when I do talk to him about it, I think I try to keep in mind that he is just someone who is looking for a conversation like he's looking to be validated and it comes from a place of disenfranchisement. And I think that the things that I try to keep in mind, like I do choose my relationship over being right or over winning an argument or over changing someone's mind because at the end of the day, like he doesn't want his mind changed and he doesn't want what I consider help. So I think that when I talk to him, I just, I don't know, I just try try to keep everything <laughs> in the front of my mind you know, don't argue too much. Just say things like, oh, that's interesting, when'd you hear that? Or, and just kind of let him run his run his wheels until he's sick of talking about it and I can ask him how the weather's been. <laughs> what do you think he's looking for with these? That's an incredibly good question. I would love to know. I think he's looking for a reality that makes sense to him, maybe. I think he's looking for something that, he can understand. Like, I think that he's maybe looking for something that makes him feel like he has a place or has, like, people around him who have the same beliefs as him. I think he's just looking for connection. I think people are just looking for connection and for community and to be people who feel misunderstood just want to feel understood at the end of the day. Isn't that it? Like, I think that that's all I can see out of it. Like, I don't think that he's looking to start a fight with me and I think, don't think he's looking for people to call him crazy. <laughs> Certainly not, you know. Trying to find out what sends people towards these theories or what makes the theories attractive in the first place is one of the million-dollar questions here. So we asked Yolanda Yetten, a professor of social psychology at the University of Queensland, to help us understand why some people get caught up in these theories. For a long time, uh, when we try to answer that question, we're very much focusing on what kind of people, what is their personality that they actually believe in these conspiracy theories. But we actually sort of start to move away from that. And it's much more that we're trying to look at it, what are the type of context when people start to be start to gravitate towards conspiracy theories because then you can start to understand what they're looking for, right? And uh, in our own work, we start to focus very much on, you know, things happen in our world 
that require an explanation. And sometimes there are these massive things happening that seem really illogical, right? How can this ever happen? And so then we start to be quite prone to conspiracy theories, right? It cannot just be an accident. It needs to be that there is someone behind this, some people who actually plot together and preferably, you know, very powerful people, people that we don't trust. That's uh, when when that is actually happening. That's when I guess we're, we're all quite uh, sort of uh, quite, you know, open to accept the validity of conspiracy explanations. So it's like an explanation thing. This is why this happened. Exactly. Yes. I mean, um, you know, whenever we go through the social world, we always look for explanations. And sometimes we often also look at other people to help us, you know, uh, why is this happening? And uh, we look for validation, affirmation of our beliefs. Um, And sometimes there's also authorities who tell us, well, you know, official accounts why things are happening. And so I'm quite interested in when it is actually that we're no longer accepting these official accounts for why 9-11 happened uh, or COVID, what's, what's the background, but when we actually start to reject those and say, no, no, actually, I know really what's happening. Something quite different is happening, much more sinister, and they want us to believe this thing, but, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm clever enough to see through that. Basically, the whole world is complicated and messy. And sometimes easy answers, even if they're wrong, just make things simpler to understand or even help you make sense of it all. I've never really followed this path. I kind of like it complicated, but I do love a good story. So when we started thinking of whether there are any conspiracy theories that I believe in or maybe more accurately just sort of entertain, I did manage to land on one. The Lost Cosmonauts. This is the theory that during the space race in the 50s and 60s, the former Soviet Union covered up the deaths of cosmonauts, Russian astronauts that were lost in space. I was reminded about this in a Reddit thread a few weeks ago. It was also debunked in the same thread, but it did make me think about why I was drawn to it. And I realised that it was so easy to believe because it reflected the secrecy that I expected of the Soviet Union and the stereotype that their space program wasn't as advanced or they weren't as skilled as the West. It just reinforced an established worldview and stereotypes that I already held. It's very much driven by stereotypes that we have and where we expect it to happen. But I guess also what what is often the case here, I mean, especially the example you're given, is it is a mystery, right? What happened to these guys? And you have a government that is uh, covering it up, right? Or is not really giving you all the information that they have. So there is something that remains to be explained. And it makes me think very much of, uh, uh, while you were talking, I was thinking of the uh, Malaysian Airlines that disappeared. And the days after, I mean, just looking on Twitter, it was full with conspiracy theories. So the more people that seem to believe it, well, maybe there is some truth to it. It's an interesting thing that starts to um, have its own life. One thing that people who follow these theories have in common is usually a starting point where they distrust governments, powerful people, institutions, etc. Which can be quite useful. I mean, the entire profession of journalism is based on questioning authority. Now that I think about it, actually, often journalists are trying to unearth conspiracies. You see, conspiracies are real. It's the theoretical part that makes it blurry. Conspiracies happen, right? Where 
powerful people, small groups of them, uh, will come together and they're hiding their actions from the public, right? You know, think even of uh, the the cigarette lobby. lobby. Uh, For years, they were actually very uh, successful in withholding information from the public that smoking is bad for you, right? So this happens. A conspiracy theory is basically a hypothesis that people may have that this is happening, but it's an untested uh, hypothesis. And so this is where the debate is coming from, where conspiracy theories, it's some people will say, yep, okay, I believe it. I think we have enough evidence to say that this is confirmed, this is a valid theory, whereas others will reject them. So it's all about the debate, is this true or is it not true? When you're talking about people who don't have that trust and faith in the government, like, is there a is there a kind of suspension of belief a part of that where they go, oh, well, obviously they're not acting in our best interest, but they're also smart enough to be able to try and hide this from us? Like, what, what hap- What's happening there? My colleague, uh, uh, Matthew Hornsey, uh, makes this point too, where he says there is something there that's not quite logical, right? Uh, on the one hand, um, you don't believe the government to be able to govern us and to, they're not competent. At the same time, there's this belief that they're so competent to plot all of these very complex uh, uh, events. And not only that, that they execute them well and they also get away with it because no one really finds out except me who really sort of uh, sort of unravels it, right, and finds little pieces of evidence that this happened. Uh, often people who are really into it, they combine different uh, conspiracy theories that are logically uh, incoherent. So just to give an example, um, uh, we find that people who uh, believe that Princess Diana was murdered uh, by MI5, they're also more likely to believe in the conspiracy that Diana actually escaped and she's living on an uninhabited island somewhere far away from the press. So she cannot be dead and alive at the same moment, but still in the mind of someone who's really into conspiracy theories, that sort of apparent contradiction doesn't uh, uh, pop up. Or uh, even uh, with bin Laden, exactly the same thing. There are big conspiracy theories that bin Laden died 10 years before he actually did. But people who believe that are also more likely to believe that he was uh, assassinated uh, by uh, the American forces when he was. So it's, it's an interesting one. Uh, you know, there's no logic to any of this. I think that's why it feels so easy to just pile on conspiracy theorists and not take them seriously at all. Like... Where's the edge of the world if the world isn't round? Birds aren't real, that's a good one. Which, have you ever seen a bird up close? They don't look real. One of my favourites is that Australia is not real. Um, It's actually an island off Florida. Yes, it's hard when you think the Earth is flat, isn't it? So if you're flying to Australia from America, you actually fly around in circles for a bit, and then you land at a place like an island off Florida or something like that, and everyone's a paid actor. I've got some questions about the salt and vinegar chip they put in my vaccine. We started turning the whole thing into a joke, which... Molly actually ended up calling us on. Isn't this conversation that you and I are having now interesting, though, because this is the cultural understanding that we have of conspiracy theories. And, like, you and I are obviously interested in it and concerned about it, but we're not blame-free because we're still joking about it and we still think it's kind of funny. And this is, like, this is part of the attitude towards it. And, like, obviously I'm not saying that we shouldn't, you know, laugh about it. It's very funny sometimes. But... I do think it's interesting that, like, even when we're, like, trying to look very critically at it and trying to look closely and deeply at it, 
it's still like a little bit of a joke to us when this is like, it's still a bit of a joke to me. And this is someone who I love endlessly and this is his reality. And I'm still like, so I think it, it would be very interesting for me to know like what, what can be done on like a larger level for us to make people feel more included and not feel like the butt of the joke. What's the risk of dismissing people who believe in conspiracy theories? Is there like an inherently kind of othering way of labelling people or isolating people who we who we kind of, in inverted commas, consider conspiracy theorists? Yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, many people will experience it. Uh, if you have a close friend, family member who uh, becomes, really goes down a rabbit hole, that, uh, yeah, their, their relationships is severely damaged. What can you do? I mean, what I guess our instinct is to start to argue and to say, look, you know, have you try and reason with them, provide explanations why they cannot be right. I, the, the initial evidence suggests that that is actually counterproductive because most conspiracy theorists, they have uh, – thought about the topic much more than many of us have who don't have a conspiracy theory. So there's no information that you can give them that they haven't always already come across. And the other thing is, of course, that if you strongly take the side of the official version, then you become identified with the official version and potentially a threat, right? You're the, for the conspiracy theorist in their minds, you become the, the danger itself, which can lead, you know, they, they alienate you and they don't want to share all the information with you. So they, they close themselves off. And so it becomes very much that they start to drift into this world of finding other like-minded individuals, hanging out with them, and they only provide them with validation and affirmation. Um, but it also means that you get polarization, right? Further away from those who try and pull them back and uh, the call of those who actually say, yeah, you know, we believe in these things just like you do, uh, that that call becomes stronger. So that's that's a very dangerous path. And uh, at the moment, actually, we, we know very little about how to break that. Yeah, right. So at the moment, we're probably not dealing with this in the right way. I agree. I, I I don't think we're dealing with it in the right way. We're we're still on the path of uh, just provide them with information. Uh, even with the vaccination campaigns, it is very much about just provide people with information about why it's so important to get vaccinated, and not enough trying to stand in the shoes of those who believe in these conspiracy theories and ask the question, why would they believe this? Why is this so compelling for them? And once you actually understand that, then you might also work a bit more with that to, to counter it. I always think about how hard trust is to build and how easy it is to lose. So turning that around is really slow going and I think will probably take us longer than we've got. But is there actually a cure for conspiracy theories? Whenever I hear people argue back, it's like they knock off one head and two more seem to pop up in the same place. So how do they die? I think that a lot of conspiracy theories have certain predictions for the future. 
And uh, right, so think of uh, all of those doomsday cults. And, and we know historically that it's very interesting to study them because when the day comes that uh, the world is going to, uh, you know, explode, but, you know, our little cult is going to be picked up by a spaceship. And when that time comes and it doesn't happen, how do you then, what do you do with that, right? Uh, you've, you've had your whole sort of... Uh, these people truly believe that the world is coming to an end and that they're the few ones who are going to be saved. When that doesn't happen, what do you do? Do you revise your theory or do you uh, just come up with more theories? And it is the latter that actually typically happens because there's too much at stake, right? If you have to accept that all of this thing that I'm so fully in, uh, this this group and, and my worldview that I have, that that's complete rubbish, well, uh, that's a very threatening uh, proposition. So uh, it's often more that people are more keen to to try and um, save the worldview than really to challenge it. If you have to admit, say, after years and years of going down the rabbit holes that, well, maybe I was wrong, that's such a threatening thing uh, to your self-esteem, to who you are, because that, that people don't uh, resist it. And if they do, they often get very isolated because you no longer have that social support from that group of other people who believe in these conspiracy theories. And because for many of them also, if they've been in it for years, they've cut ties with families, friends before that period. So it's it can be a very isolating experience. Experience. And you're left with all of these events that that's, <laughs> that happens and you still don't know why they happened. <laughs> I'd never really put myself in these shoes before. I thought about what might attract people, how they thought about and justified these theories, but never how much a part of them it was, which kind of changes how I'd approach someone, especially someone close. Let's say there's someone who believes George Bush is behind 9-11, maybe an aunt of yours. What else is going on in their life? How close were you before you were just laugh reacting to all their Facebook posts? I wanted to know how you could get back to a time before the conspiracy memes and the obnoxiously unhelpful comment threads. It's not about challenging. It's not about starting to win the argument or proving them wrong. It is about maintaining the relationship. And, and one thing that also comes to mind is that there are some researchers now that you could call it an inoculation uh, approach, right, where you get small doses of information that might challenge a conspiracy theory, but only very small doses. You actually just plant the seed in their minds as something that doesn't quite stack up. So I, I like that approach because it is the soft approach that allows you to maintain the relationship that helps people to work out for themselves what the truth is. Do you think your brother will ever change? No, and I don't think he wants to. Like, I think to change, you want to change. Changing is incredibly difficult and it takes a lifetime. And I don't think that he wants to change and I think that that's actually okay. Like, I think that he thinks, thinks, believes, feels that he knows the truth and he feels righteous, he feels good, he feels good when he's telling you about it, he feels like he's helping you, he feels like he's saving you, even in some small way. I think he feels like he understands something and that he belongs to something bigger than just himself and that the world that absolutely makes no sense whatsoever to him maybe isn't as it seems and that's a good thing. So I actually don't think that pressuring someone to change, like, what's it going to do for us, what's it going to do for them other than, you know, I 
think we're maybe the ones who need to change a little bit. Maybe, just maybe, those small drops will add up over time. I kind of like Sam at this point, so I hope they do. But look, maybe they won't. At the very least, though, by prioritising the relationship, Molly can still pick up the phone to her brother and ask him how the weather is. Make sure you follow Doom Scroll Remedy in your favourite podcast app so you can join us as we dive into other existential threats like just how bad plastics are for us or bushfires and climate change. We may well see see more extreme fires. It's, it's probably fair to deduce that we're likely to see more frequent thunderstorms associated with those fires that present the associated risks that we've spoken about. But a lot of that will depend on, on how our climate changes, how these natural climate cycles interact with each other but also how they respond to global warming. Doomscroll Remedy is a podcast from the University of Queensland. It's produced by Deadset Studios. Hosted by me, Stephen Stockwell. Produced by Grace Pashley. Executive producer is Rachel Fountain. Sound design by Chrissy Miltiadu. Consulting producer Zoe McDonald. Commissioning editor, Greta Uses. 